Right now, I'd like you to take a minute and imagine this scenario. I live in Florida, in the southeast area of the United States. I like it here. We have good weather most of the time, which means I can get out and bike almost every morning year-round. My area is highly populated, so anything I need is readily available. Grocery stores always stocked with food, lots of doctors and hospitals for medical care, and paved roads so I can drive my car anywhere I want. And if I need to go any distance, I have a major international airport about 20 minutes from my house. And like most Americans, I tend to take those things for granted. Then one night, a large group of rebel fighters, heavily armed, lands on Clearwater Beach. They start going through the residential neighborhoods, throwing rocks through windows, setting houses on fire. People wake up in confusion, not understanding why they're hearing explosions and gunfire. Parents grab their children and run outside to escape their burning home, only to be shot to death in their front yard. News spreads quickly, by social media and by friends and family members calling to warn each other about what's happening. I get a phone call and realize we need to get out of the area as quickly as possible. My mom lives close by, so I call her and tell her quickly what's happening and that we'll pick her up in about 10 minutes. Then we frantically try to decide what to bring. For me, this would be very difficult. Whenever I go on a trip, I have a checklist of things way ahead of time to make sure I don't forget anything. Now I have just a few minutes to decide what to grab. Our dogs, obviously. My laptop. Some clothes. A toothbrush. But how do you even decide what to bring when you don't know where you're going or how long you'll be gone? I don't even know how much gas is in my car. But we're able to escape and we drive north. After about seven hours in the car, we get to Atlanta. What we find is a large area where makeshift tents have been set up for the people who were forced to flee the state of Florida. This is where we live now. Our life is a tent community of Florida refugees and we can never go back to where we used to live. For Americans, this sounds pretty far-fetched. We don't really think about a situation like this because it just doesn't happen here. But for my guest today, Dee, it's not just a made-up story. Dee lived with his parents and his siblings in a refugee camp in a village called Gatumba. This is in the country of Burundi in Africa. Their community was attacked one night, and the violence that was carried out was so vicious it made worldwide news. Even to this day, that massacre is what the village of Gatumba is known for. Dee witnessed some horrific things that night, and he was only five years old. And a note about listening. Dee speaks fluent English, but he still has that strong African accent. If you'd like to listen while reading the words on the screen, you'll find the full transcript of our conversation at whatwasthatlike.com slash 102. 
real people in unreal situations. There is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. My friend has been shot. I'm in the literally inside the river and I'm inside my car. He had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire. If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you. And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be okay. And I jumped on the hood of the car and I held on. And I looked into the garage and he was hanging from the rafters. I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. You go by the nickname D. Yes. How do you actually say your first name? My first name is uh, Diedonne. It's a French name. Most people cannot pronounce it because it's a pretty, not common name, I would say, but... People call me D more than my actual name. Like, I'm so used to it. Then. Much easier, for sure. Way yeah. easier, yeah. Before this happened, would you say your early childhood was pretty normal? Yes, I would say it was a, it was a very, I wouldn't say I was spoiled, but was a, I had a very good life. I was very happy. I was never, ever, like, um, feeling down. I just, I was always, every day was a good day. I had two loving parents that I really love that are, well, just a very, very happy moment in my life, yeah. And you were born in DRC, which is the Democratic Republic of Congo in Africa. And then later your family moved to Burundi, which is not just a different city, but a different country. Can you explain that? Why did you why did the family move? There's a thing uh in Africa, in the Congo, there's a lot of uh Tribes, there's a lot of tribes, a lot, a lot of tribes. It's like over, like, can't tell me, but there's a lot of tribes. And those tribes, they, most of them don't really get along. My dad raised me in a way, or raised uh, as his kids, that way to love everybody. We just love every single human being. We love all people. Like, my dad had a house where, like, uh, he would welcome students, many, many students, to come stay at our house, to go squatter our house. Everyone was welcome, and most 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 people didn't like them. They didn't really call them Congolese because they they seemed that they talked about they talked about, like about people from Rwanda. So they were they would like they were always kicked out, like, being kicked out of Congo to go to a different country, or to be kicked out of Congo to go to like to just to know to not be in Congo pretty much. And then when some of them decided to go to a neighboring country called Burundi, where there were like, a refugee camp there. And for some reason, uh, my uh, my parents moved there too. They wanted to move there. 
to stay with the people there to look, maybe to look for a better life, I guess. This is kind of a foreign concept for us here in America. So you had to leave where you were born and where your family was living and you lived, you moved to this other country and lived in a refugee camp in a tent. In a tent. Yeah. Gatumba. It's a, it, it's a literally like the border of right beside the border of Congo. So it's not in Congo, but it's like right after you have to leave the border of Congo. So it's like right there, which is not really the safest thing to do. So the refugee camp was right there. And then people from Congo can come anytime because we can see the border from where we were. If you look very closely, you can see the border of Congo and now you're in Burundi. But it was literally, it wasn't really like a, you could walk to the border or to Gatumba. It wasn't that far at all. And who was in your family at this time? So at this time, I had uh, two older brothers. With them, uh, my, older, my oldest one was uh, Andre, and then there were Remy, and then there were me. And then I had a younger sister uh, named uh, Biamo. And then at the time, my mom was pregnant, but I had no idea. I didn't know at the time she was pregnant. She was pregnant, but I think it was like seven months pregnant. But I didn't know that at the time because uh, I was five, so I was already looking at that or paying attention to that kind of stuff. Right. You were five years old. You don't really notice stuff notice like that. that. Exactly, yeah. Okay, so there were your mom and dad and four kids, so three boys and one girl. Yes. And the the baby that hadn't been born yet. Born, yes, and you were five years old. Friday, August 13, 2004. What happened on that day? August 13 was... Uh, so, I want to say normal, which is one of those days that it's like, not regular, but just... It felt a bit off, a bit weird. Here in the U.S., and maybe it's worldwide... Friday the 13th, whenever the 13th of the month falls on a Friday, it's considered to be unlucky or something odd. Do you guys think that as well? We do not know. No, not in Africa, no. Like, I've heard of that, a movie that I've heard of, but I've heard of stuff because, like, I'm raised here, yeah. But, like, I'm aware of that. I'm aware that 13 is an unlucky number, yes. And it's not really a thing back home, no. I wouldn't say that people are scared of that number, no. Okay, but something just felt kind of off that day. Yeah, it just it felt really, I don't know, just sometimes like your body knows when things is not right, you know. But it was just, we're just eating at the last meal of the day. It was like around, I think, I think around nine-ish or eight, we're eating last meal, the last meal. And then I was a kid that like, I don't know, I was very close with my dad, so like I would like him to feed me. I don't know why. So he would always feed me. And then I'll be close to him and he would talk. But, um, my sister, my younger sister was there. And me and her, we talked a bit, we did, but we were like, we were like, I, love, I loved her so much. We were like our best friends. And she always got me in ways like on my back. If I do something around the house, she would always be, say it's her instead of me so that I don't get in trouble. And she knows that she won't get in trouble. And then she would say it's her. You know, because my dad or my mom would not be mad at her to be mad at me anymore because I'm the boy, the boy that gets in trouble and all that. So she always say it's her who did stuff, even though it's me who did it. Yeah, my dad that day fit me because I like I like him fitting me. I don't know why I, I was always like a, I was there to fit myself. But um, I remember, I remember like we were going to uh, we were going to to bed at this time, like around ten ish, 
people are not really sleeping. Like we're not, we're not all sleeping. Some people are still awake outside, still talking and stuff like that. And we're all just, we're all just sleeping in our beds and stuff. And all laying. I think I was already passed out. I think I was already gone. I was already asleep. But we just started hearing gunshots outside. We started hearing gunshots and all that. And my mom would ask my dad, like, those are gunshots. My dad would say, no, those are people just hunters. Probably people trying to uh, kill some cows and stuff like that or wild animals. I was like, no, those are actual gunshots outside. And we saw, I, my mom, I think she just ran outside. Like my sister, my sister, she ran outside. And my other brother, I don't know where he, he ran, but he was not there. And my oldest brother, he wasn't sleeping. That's he was sleeping like, with his other guy friends, like in their own tent. He wasn't, he wasn't there. So in that tent, it was only me and my dad left. And then I remember, remember it was, uh, he was just, he was looking at me. And I, I never, at that time, I'd never seen my dad cry. I'd never seen him sad and stuff like that. I remember just seeing him there. But just, it was like, he was as if he was trying to like, uh, to come to me, but I was wondering, well, like, why isn't he getting up? Like he, because he was doing his like you know soldiers, they crawl when they have gears on their head on the back, so they they don't like they don't crawl with the knees, but they just crawl with their they pose themselves with their with their arms, you know. So he was doing that, but I feel, I could tell he was in pain. I could tell he was just uh, it was really hard for him to do that. But he just kept telling me like uh, go see mom, run to mom, run to mom. But I didn't know at the time that he was uh he was shot, he was shot on the in the hip area like uh, on your on your waist here so when you get shot there usually like you get paralyzed at immediately you know you can walk after that you just fall or if you're if you're lying you won't get back up because that's it you're paralyzed right there so you could like i didn't know that then but like i was just wondering what why isn't it getting up or was it getting faster he was just stuck there and for some reason i don't know why even now i still regret i don't know why i left him i don't know why i ran like I really regret running from him. I regret not staying there with him. I just I wish I stayed there with him. I would think like if I stayed there with him, maybe he would be here today. But for some reason I ran. I ran and I I would usually hear helicopters going by. I would see them flying by and I oh it's a helicopter and then I would know the sound of a helicopter. As I was running in Gatumba. I heard something that sounded like an helicopter, so I thought it was an helicopter. I was looking, I was like, it's an helicopter. But I didn't see an helicopter anywhere, but I didn't know what it was then, but it's actual machine guns, uh, automatic automatic machine guns. So, like, they don't they don't stop the the sound. They just keep going like an helicopter. So I thought it was an helicopter, but no, those were actual, like, actual automatic, automatic guns, which sounds similar. I don't know why, but it sounds similar because an helicopter, it's like with the blades and all that. Because of the continuous firing. Continuous firing, yes. So they don't like, it's just over and over, you know, it's like there's no breaks between them. So like, I really thought I was going to talk about that. Like, it was very dark. I was just running, running. I saw so many bodies. I don't know why I saw so many bodies. People were crying. People were yelling. Stumbled onto bodies. I uh, saw brains, people's brains on the floor. Blood was splashing everywhere. For some reason, it's as if my mouth was open, but blood went in my mouth. I tasted blood, actual human blood. And I think at this time I was alone. I wasn't. I was. I didn't meet up with them yet. 
You know what I mean? So I was running alone. I, I didn't meet up my, my brother and my sister. I, I was alone at this time first. I met up with them after. As I was running, I was by myself. And I witnessed, I witnessed, uh, I witnessed a rape. Like I saw, I heard words of a woman being raped. And seeing that at five years old, I didn't know what was going on at the time, but like, I could tell that she was, she didn't want what was happening to her. She was just in pain. She was crying. She was just screaming that so that he doesn't kill her. He can do what he's doing, but just don't kill her. Spare her life. And I didn't know what was going on at the time, but I know now that it was rape. She was being raped by a couple of guys. <sighs> rape is something that just scares me. Does it? I don't really like hearing about rape or someone's capable of that, even to this day. My some miracles as, as, as I'm still running, I meet up with my brother and my sister, my brother Remy and my sister. Then he holds me and I start asking him, like, where's mom? I want to see my mom. And my sister at the time, she was just, she was very quiet. She was just, my brother was carrying her. She was carrying on his shoulder. And then I remember looking at her, she was very calm and just there. I wish I had talked to her, but I didn't talk to her. I was just, I looked at her, but I didn't say anything to her. But I could tell she was awake. She was alive. She was just there. I didn't know that was the last time that I would ever look her or that I would ever see her looking back at me. I just wish that I talked to her, I said anything to her, but I didn't. As we, as we're walking, to run away, we meet up with uh, some soldiers. Nobody looks soldiers, but the people that would kill people. And my brother thought he was scared. But I didn't know what's going on. I didn't know who they were, but he knew who they were. They were the bad people, the ones that were good people. My parents just said we're innocent, they were kids. We don't know what's going on. And by some miracle, they just let us go. They let us, okay, keep going, don't come back, keep running, don't come back. Well, don't look back, I guess. But we just remember at the time we didn't know that my sister was injured she was shot but she was shot in the like in the lower side of the uh, of the the stomach here and then she, she went so long without medical attention or anything like that so the bullet just sat there in her and then it slowly killed her but we didn't know that she was dead we thought she was sleeping but she was, she was already gone she was already dead After this, after my, my, we found out my sister was dead, we didn't know. I don't know, most of it's blurry after this, but I don't know how or what happened when we ended up at the hospital. I don't know how we got there, but we just appeared. I feel like we just appeared there for some reason. 
The next morning, they found uh, my mom. My mom was uh, she wasn't in good shape at all. She was laying there with her some of her intestines out, the insides of her out, and at the time she was pregnant. Some people really thought like this woman is dead. She's not alive. They just take her with the dead people and go bury her. Cause and some people and some people were like no, she's alive. They just go see if she's alive. But some people know she's definitely dead. Or her things, her her insides are out. Her babies can dance a little bit, but we can tell the baby is uh, is definitely dead also. But they took her. I took her to the hospital, and my other brother was supposed to go for us, but we had found out that we were at the hospital. And then they asked him, just saw, you, saw your family member. He's like, yeah, that's my, my, my two brothers, my sister, and my mom. And the nurses were just amazed. They were like, how, how is she alive? They couldn't explain how she could be alive after all that. She was shot in the leg, so like one of her legs was literally broken, couldn't walk. And she was shot right in the middle, right under the belly button here with a baby in the stomach. So we don't know. No one can ever explain how that happened or how she's alive. And that bullet that went through her stomach here was never found. They never saw where it went. They could never trace it. But the one in the leg, they could find it and took it, they took it out. As we're in the hospital this whole time, my brother had to go identify some, my identify one of the bodies that they found, which was my dad. They found him outside a tent where we were sleeping. So that means that he crawled all the way out the tent. Then he was really burnt. He was burnt from like the waist. From the head, some person in the head, in the back, he was just burned. He was uh, trying to escape, but he was just. It haunts me that knowing that he died in pain. He was in so much pain when he died. He was in so so much pain. He was in. And the reason he was burnt was because they set the tent on fire. The people that were doing that, they had gas with them. Yeah, just some they set a tent on fire. They they threw gas on people and burnt them alive. Yeah, they were just and the bullets that they were shooting people. They're not just those small bullets. Those bullets, those long bullets, they really came to kill. They didn't came to injure us. They came to eliminate everybody that was there. They didn't come to just to joke around. No, they came to kill whatever they say. They those weren't small bullets. No, they were actual those long, big bullets. We talk about machines, guns. Those are really serious, serious machines. So like they were burning the tents and then they were throwing gasoline on fire so that people can burn. And the victims that were coming for they were really, they killed more women and children more than men. They were really coming to, I don't know if they were coming for women more, but they killed more women and children. A lot of, uh, some women were pregnant also. A lot of women were found with their baby out of them. So imagine a woman is pregnant. A person came, or the people came, they caught her, took the baby out of her, and then killed her, killed the baby also. It sounds like it's from a movie, but this actually happened. I have a hard time believing in YouTube, but like, I was there, I witnessed it, so like I cannot, I can't say that it was a movie because I witnessed it, I saw what happened. 
So my dad was found was uh, burned in the back and all that, burned the friend. And they saw that, yeah, he was shot in the waist side, so he couldn't walk, he was crawling to outside. And knowing that I was the last person that saw him, and the fact that I couldn't help him, couldn't stay there with him, it haunts me to this day, knowing that I was the last person who saw him, and I left him there. That it just it makes me think that did I kill him? Did am I the one at fault here? Did I abandon abandon my father, a person who I loved so much, who raised me to be a good person? But at five years old, you wouldn't have been able to help him. Of course not. But I think it's at five years old. You think you're so strong. You think you're the strongest person in the world. You know, I got a nephew who's five today. He's five now. He's Genesis and. Looking at him, I'm like, I was that age. So like, there's no way I could have done that. He's like, this small, he's like, and he says, D, look at me, I'm so strong, I'm a Superman. Like, wow, it's, it makes me like, like, okay. I, I'm just like, okay, yeah, you're strong, you're strong, you're very strong. You know, at five years old, you think you're the strongest person in the world, you think you're so strong. And I was just thinking like, what didn't I help him? Why didn't I carry him with me or pull him? I just tried to pull him. I just left him there and started running away. What can I say? When I plan a week of meals, I like to have some variety. And with hundreds of meals to choose from, CookUnity has that part covered. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. Not too long ago, I tried the cauliflower and chickpea coconut curry. I love curry anyway, but even if you're not normally a fan, you should try this one. It's one of the dishes prepared by Chef Michelle Bernstein here in Florida. She has a couple of restaurants here, and she's also a judge on the TV show Chopped, so you may have already seen her. But aside from the taste, it's the convenience. Because let's face it, even if I knew how to cook, I don't have time. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when mealtime rolls around, I pick out what I feel like eating, and within just a few minutes, it's ready. No prep and no cleanup. And when I say variety, I'm talking over 350 different meals from dozens of chefs. You can decide based on a chef you like, or protein content, or just what you prefer. The menus are updated weekly, so there's always something new. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of CookUnity. Go to cookunity.com what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com what. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. At the hospital, my mom, she was doing okay, but she, the baby kept on growing in her stomach, and it kept trying to close where the, the bullet went, and uh, the operator her to close it. But the, mo- the moment the baby moved, or she kicked, or she moved a bit, that would, whatever, whatever they closed, they just had to reset it again, close it again. So I think about it, every time she moves, the baby kicks a bit, that just opens again. 
It was just a hard, hard process. And the baby was exposed most of the time outside. And they just did. They didn't know. They, they didn't know if they could save both of them. So they asked my brother, we are not sure if we could save both of them. But we got some papers for you to sign here. You can choose who you'd like to save, either your mom or your sister, because we don't think we can save both. He just told them, no, I would not decide. He walked away. I would not, I would not choose who I want to kill or I want to murder. Uh, God would decide that. Just do what you can, and God will God will decide what happens. Not me. I'm not. I'm not gonna be. I'm not gonna take that as sin against me because we're raised Christians. My mom, she's a very to this day, she's a very very religious person. I remember growing up, looking at her, I'm like, this person is so religious. Like she's really into God. She would always sing gospel songs. Uh, always like the happiest person. She was so happy. She was really really happy. I never once saw her in a bad mood or her crying, never. She was always extremely, extremely happy. So, like, seeing her on that stage. At that time, like, I, I couldn't go see my mom very much. I could see her for a few seconds, and they had to take me out. If my brother, even if he went to go see her, he, like, they, they would tell him, do not tell her about your father, do not tell her about your little sister. And... They would tell the same thing. Like at a time, this they even tell they were telling me that my father will come back. He's just at the hospital. He's in Kenya. Kenya is a country in in Congo, in Africa. Sorry. And some people that went to my were also flew in to Kenya. They flew them there so they can get operated there. And some went to the hospital because the hospital just got full at the moment. People went through this. Some people they were taken out of another country to go get a at the hospital so they were telling us that our dad my dad is now is in kenya but i knew that he was in kenya i knew that he died and for some reason it's a, it was as if i believed them i want to believe them. oh like, okay let's just let me believe them maybe maybe he did survive maybe he did i should go in kenya but your mom didn't know anything about that she had no idea he was as if she was in a coma in a way you know not sure of that, but like, I don't think they put a pregnant woman in coma, but she, she, they, she didn't want that to be spoken beside her because if she freaks out or she gets scared, that's a chance of killing her and a baby at the same time. So they, they, want, they wanted to avoid that at all costs, not to scare her, not to spook her in a way, you know what I mean? Because she was very, very sensitive. This is such an unusual situation. I mean, for her to be shot in the stomach... I mean, for her to survive is amazing, but then for the baby to survive as well, and now she's in the hospital not knowing that her husband and her daughter have died, and it's just such an odd, such a bizarre situation. That's the thing that the nurse says. Well, so some of them, they know what they're doing, but it was just like, this is something that I don't think I would ever see again in my, history, in my whole career. Because they couldn't explain how she's alive. The baby is healthy. Not a single scratch on her. Nothing touched her. She was a complete, complete healthy baby. She was just okay. She was perfect, you know. Some nurses couldn't explain that. It was just how, how it was possible. How, how the bullet went into her stomach. How did a bullet, did it curve? Did it disappear? Where did it go? 
they couldn't find it. They didn't know where it went. They couldn't find it at all. Yeah, so they just they kept telling us never to, to talk about it in the hospital or close to her. You know, keep that away from at all cost. So I would go see her sometimes, and they wouldn't let me stay for long. So she would look at me, and she would talk to me. She would oh, D. My mom asked me, like, what's your sister? And whenever she asked me what about my dad, my sister, they would just take me out. They would be like, oh, he's going to go. He's hungry. Oh, he's, gonna, he's hungry to wait there. And then October 2nd came. And this is the time where they, uh, they were saying, okay, the baby has to come out. The baby's getting way too big. She's a nine months. She has to come out now. So they took the baby out. The baby came out healthy. She's just a miracle baby. She's alive today. She's 17 years old today. She will graduate this year, high school, class of 2022. Once she was born, and the nurses, the doctors, everyone was in tears. They're like, this baby is alive. She's here. Most of them, they were very religious. They were Christians. They were just saying, we didn't do anything. God did this. God did. God brought this baby out because we are not trained to do this. We're not trained to save a baby that was literally in the stomach. They spoiled most of the time. She was outside the womb most of the time. She wasn't really, like, every time she moved, the wound will open and the baby will be exposed to the world, which is not common, you know. Maybe it's just be somewhere that's warm in the, in the womb with her mother, but she was the most unconscious outside. The more she grew, the more she opened, the more she grew, the more it opened. So, like, they were in tears. They were just saying, maybe it's alive. The baby's alive. And my mother, she also became very healthy. They closed it, closed the wound, uh, the stomach. Her leg was getting better. So she, they taught her how to walk. She had to learn to walk again properly. She had to learn to walk. She started walking normally. She started walking. She's good. She walks normally today. She can not walk for too long, too, too long, but she can walk normally. She can climb the stairs. She can, doesn't use a cane, doesn't use any wheelchair, nothing. She's perfectly healthy. She's something that, like, uh, only God can do that. Like, uh, I don't know. If... And the thing with my dad is uh, he was a person who carried all his belongings. Like, he carried all the documents, all our pictures, everything about us, he carried it. So when that happened in Katumba and they burned all the tents and all, they burned all the documents, Everything that we had about us, everything that we had about his story, our pictures, our baby pictures, his like pictures, and all of our pictures, they were all burnt. All his clothes were burnt, and no one outside, like his um, his brothers or his mom, had pictures. He had everything that belongs to him. He has ev he has all his documents except some pictures of him that were that were when he was in like in a university, but like everything that was about him, he had everything. So like. To this day, as of right now, we do not have a picture of my dad or my sister. We don't have a single nothing about them. It's literally as if they never existed. And there's nowhere I can go. And because usually it's in the movies or you see people when a loved one passes on, they will go in the family pictures. We're like, oh, there he was. He was like, there's a picture of him. I cannot do that. I can't do that. I can't ever go somewhere and look at a picture of him because we don't have that picture of him. We don't have nothing about him. Nothing, nothing at all. I have lost a memory of him. I've lost his face. I don't know what it looked like. I have no idea, which which really hurts me. Because I wish I really knew how he looked like. Cause 
So right about late October, we had to tell her, break the news to her. Um, I wasn't there, but my brother, my brother had to go talk because they didn't want me to be close to her. They just told her, um, yeah, uh, your husband is not in Kenya. Your daughter neither. The, they didn't make it. They passed away. They died. Your husband was shot in the leg, so he was paralyzed and burnt. Your daughter was uh, I'm so shy, but she didn't make it either. Only uh, three sons and a daughter made it. And you. I remember she was, after I saw her, she was just very, she broke down. She was just very broken. She was very, very lost. But my mom, she's a strong woman. She's a very, very strong woman. She pulled through. But I mean, she's never okay, even today, she, even today she's not okay. I'm, I'm trying to think about it every day. Because she says, she's not even today, she's like, that was, that, my dad was her best friend. He was, that was her partner in life. He was the one that was meant for her. He was her best friend. Even even when I ask about him, like, how was he, you know, because I only got five years with him. I didn't, you know, I don't know much which also hurts me. I only got five years with him. So whenever I ask about him, how was he? They all, like, I've never heard a bad thing about him. Nothing. He was a great, great person. He was a great, loving person. Nothing that I heard about him that was, uh, he was a bad person. Nothing. Not that he was a great person. Everyone liked him. Everyone loved him. And just to have no memory, nothing about him that I can look and, and see that's him. Nothing of that. So she's been like, she, she was just lost. That was her best friend. So close. They were really happy. They were extremely, extremely happy. And I remember a day that I ever saw my mom crying or in tears. Never. She was always just in a good mood. Always extremely happy. Helping out the neighborhood. Always helping out the people that you need. Same as my dad, they were really the ones, they were really into helping others. They were really into providing for others in need because they don't have much and they would help out, uh, give food, give clothes. They were really doing that, the work of, the work for God. Uh, it's, uh, so like after all that, we were there until like late September. We went, we moved to a, uh, Another neighboring uh, refugee camp in a uh, bit far from Gatumba. We were there for a few, a few, a few months, few years. So in other nations, I asked, uh, I took the resign in Canada to move to Canada, a city uh, called Winnipeg, Manitoba. We said yes, and most people moved. Uh, most people were taken to the to the states. Our people were taken to a. Uh, uh, Chicago and uh, you know New York City, people also were taken to, into Canada. Some were taken to Alberta, Ontario, or New Brunswick, Manitoba. As we went to uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is a it was a very very cold place. It was extremely cold. Yeah, that's got to. I was just thinking, you come from Africa, one of the hottest places in the world. Yeah. And going to Canada, which is one of the coldest, yeah, that had to be so such a shock. It was a big shock, yeah. But 
So this was the a program with the, the United Nations. The United Nations was placing political refugees at other places just for for protection, for safety. Yeah, so like they were the ones that were providing safety at Katumba. They were the ones that were protecting us there, but they felt that the protection didn't protect us there. We were attacked there, so not like to not like to 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 help us or to pay pay us back, but they just want to offer a better protection to move people away, like different countries. If that will help better, you know what I mean? Because in the United Nations, they were the ones that were supposed to protect us in Gatuma, they were supposed to be this umbrella for us. But they, they felt that, that they miserably felt that they didn't help us, they abandoned us in that way. So then we came and looked at the people that were the survivors and want to give them better life away from all that, just leave all that behind. How did you feel about that, leaving the only country you had ever known to come to Canada? I mean, your your mom and the kids, were you guys all okay with that? I'm pretty sure they were all okay with it. Yeah, they were all okay with it because I guess you, you felt safer and we were aware that that won't happen again here, you know, what happened. But I could say that I, at first I was like, yeah, let's probably go. You know, and this is like this is when I'm like I'm probably I'm eight, eight, seven, nine here. You know, so go to Winnipeg. We moved there, and you know, just, yeah, it's cold. I guess it was cold, and I remember just I, I didn't like being around people much. I was scared of people now. I defo- I developed this uh thing where I didn't like being large crowds. I didn't want like being uh, around a lot of people that I'm not. I don't know who they are or they're not family. Even today, I still I still have the phobia, I guess. I don't like being around people. If two people come, I usually leave. I go in the room and I'll just hide there. But I remember just not being uh, comfortable in school or if I go at separate teams and all the activities that they did not like being being watched or by people, being around other people. So I would always like being alone, but no one understood that. No one understood how I felt. I couldn't really tell them that, uh, how I felt. I'm a person, I've developed this, this thing where like, I like uh, teaching myself more than being taught stuff. So I would learn on my own. I would learn myself. I don't teach myself stuff, you know, that there's some people teaching me, but I had this, uh, this uh, nightmare where, like, I'll see people, uh, people suffering in the world. And I always think it's, why why isn't everybody there helping people? Like, why isn't there people there helping others that they need? You know, there are people watching other people crying or people suffering, but I'm sure that we're not, a, like, I'm not the only nice person out here because I'm raised to be a nice person. I was raised to be a caring person. Why is it when I like that? You know, most of the time I'll, I'll think of my dad. I would see like, oh, man, like I left that person there. Like, I, why didn't I save them? Why didn't I go back and meet them with them? And that would always haunt me. Like sometimes even now it still haunts me. That I blame myself for that. Like I think I'm my fault for that. And like I don't, I don't talk about, I don't talk much about myself. 
often so like no one has ever told me like oh you're not a fault it's not your fault no 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 that's it's, it's you're a five but there's things there's 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 days where i think it's my fault and i'm the one who caused that i didn't go back for him i didn't stay there with him and like i wish that it was me sort of him and like my younger sister like i just wish that she got to experience life. I wish like she actually got to explore life. Like at four years old, have you having your life taken away like that? Like out of the blue, you know? So I remember, I remember being like really mad with God. I was, I really hated God at the, at the moment. I really, really hated him. Like, cause I was taught, I was taught at a young age that God is a good person. It's a good, uh, good being. He loves you. He loves everybody and all that. And I was looking at him like, you are an evil person. I, I want nothing to do with you. I don't want to talk to you ever again. You killed a kid, a four-year-old. That did nothing to you. Like, she was just there and you took her away. You took her away. Like, why did you leave me? Like, am I better than her? You know? So I was, I was very mad with God. I really hated him. These are a lot of mental issues that it seems like you would be helped by therapy. Have you had counseling or therapy at all to help you with this? Uh, the thing, the thing with therapy, even at the time, I didn't know what therapy was a thing because therapy isn't really a thing in the African culture. Therapy, it's like it's not that we we don't talk about it. We just it's not doesn't exist. It's not there. It's not accessible. Like even you see the whole African continent. If you even Google now, a therapy in Africa, I'm sure you would have nothing. It's not. It's nothing. There's not talk about. It's not talk about. It's just. It's not. It's unknown. You know what I mean? I mean, I know about it now, but like, I never really got taught about it or ever, ever felt it or that I needed it. But I'm doing better, you know, because I've seen people and the people that went, that were survivors from Gatumba, there were people even today that lost both parents, you know. They were parents that lost all kids. They're just parents left. So like, I'm doing good with, I'm doing good with God now. I'm on good terms with God. God has helped me to see that, to notice that even though you lost your father and your sister, but there's people out there that lost both parents. You got a parent that loves you still. She's there for you. There's kids out there that are alone. There's people that I mean, that, that live in Edmonton, Alberta. There's, two, there's three, four girls and two boys that lost both parents. They're just there. There's people that, just, you know, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that. God provided that with me. God helped me through that. We we have all united. We have all helped each other. We talk about this stuff every August 13th of every year. It's the 17th year this anniversary this year. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M 
Com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. So my two brothers, are, they are married. Yes, the two, they both uh, have kids. My oldest brother, Andre, the coolest thing that happened is his wife was also in Gatunba. His wife lost her mother in Gatunba. So he, he married a woman named uh, Beatrice. She's uh, just the most wonderful, beautiful sister-in-law that I could ever ask for. She's wonderful. You know, like I love her. She's a great person. She had lost her mother in Gatunba also. And uh, we all united at the in Canada. She, they, they, when they came, they moved to uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, and we moved to Winnipeg, Manitoba. So, like, we somehow we got connect, contacted, and we are, oh, yeah, you were there and all that. Did they know each other back in Gatumba? They did not know. They met after Gatumba. We moved to another place in, in Burundi. They met there. Then we all just got separated. Some people to the U.S., and, and they were sent to Newfoundland. So he married her. So like, uh, there's a, a well-known history that they know each other very, very well. They've been through the same thing, you know, that, so. Do you all live near each other so that you can see your nieces and nephews and brothers? So when we, after we moved to Winnipeg, we moved to uh, Edmonton, Alberta, which is still Canada. We were there for a while. We we all moved there. We all, I mean, we all lived there for, you know, that. I went to high school there. In my early high school years, I'd worked at a restaurant uh, called McDonald's for a while, for a few years. And while working there, I'd met uh, I'd met this really beautiful woman, a uh, beautiful girl named Gloria. She was just very, very, like her name says, she's just Gloria. She's just, she just very wonderful. She was very, uh, she's just one of the person that looked at you. She looks at you. You feel very like, wow. She looks at you. She looks at you right in the eyes. Like she just opens you or swallows your soul in a way. Very, very uh, glowing. I remember we talked for a while for a few years. We were talking and just, you know, seeing each other and all that. And then I remember she would always ask me, D, you know, we can date. We can date. She would say most of the time, we can date. We can do this. We can date. And I remember I would never answer her. I would just look at her and then I would try to answer but my words would not come out my mouth. I just I can't answer her for some reason. I don't know why at the time, but I just I couldn't answer her. She would just say, dear, we can date, we can do this, you know, we can. I could tell she, she was in love with me and I was, I was just really love, I was in love with her. Like I really loved her, but I don't know why I didn't express that. I wouldn't tell her, you know, but I come to find it's like, I'm scared. I'm sort of scared of losing people in my life. I'm scared of if I bring her in my life, 
to be a day that I will either I'll either I will die or she will die and she'll leave me behind or I will leave her behind. And that scares me. It scares me losing people. It scares me that when I have to let people go in life. Like I mean go as in like they they pass away and that just haunts me. And I just I wish like a, I wish she understood that I also was in love with her. I wanted to be with her, but I just I couldn't answer her for some reason. I couldn't tell her how I felt. A reason of uh, someday she can pass away, or I will pass away, and I have to leave her behind. My mom, like she has days that she like she's not feeling good. You know, we all have those days that we're just down a bit. You know, those feelings. I just look at her like I tell her, like you. You're so, you're so strong. You're a strong woman. Like you raised three boys on your own. You raised a girl on your own. No one came to help you. You did that all by yourself. And I'm really proud of you. I'm so, so proud of you. You're a great woman. You're a great mom. And I'm not saying that you don't have, you don't have the right to do feel like this, but like we all have this feeling, but like you should be proud of yourself. You did so much for us and I'm forever grateful for that. Thank you for this life. We all lived in Edmonton for a few years. We were there. I didn't want to be there anymore. It was just too big, too crowded. And crowds don't make me, I'm not kind of a crowd, big crowds. So I moved to a, a smaller city. So I looked at New Brunswick. I moved to New Brunswick. Uh, and since I moved there, my whole family came here. We can be all close to each other. We've never really lived far from each other. We've always been close to each other. We've always been uh, near each other, which is that our family that like being close to each other. We just uh, family is something that I, family is something that I really really love. Family, I love my family so much. Nothing that I wouldn't do for them. We've always been there for each other, and we will always be there for each other. When it comes to my mom, my mom she's something, someone that I, I'm a, I'm a mom's boy, so like I love my mom so very much. She's a uh, Someone that I really, really uh, honor. Like, I I love her so much. She has done so much for me. Like, there were never a day in my life that, that I felt hunger, that I needed food, that I needed clothes. All that was always there. It was always, I was at clothes to wear. I was at food to eat. And I just asked her, like, how do you do all that? Like, we always had food. We always had clothes to wear, always under a roof. Never a day, I never a day that I felt hunger. Never a day that I, I was wondering like, oh, what I eat today. She has always been provided for us. She's such a strong, strong woman. I hate, I hate when I feel like, uh, I hate it hands me like, uh, knowing that one day it's possible that she will leave me behind, or, and I just don't think that I would ever ever do accept that that she can leave me behind or she can pass away. I would not be able to take that very well. It scares me every day that knowing that it's very possible that she can she will leave me or she can leave me at any time alone. She she just she has taught me so much in life. I'm so grateful for her. Like there's nothing that I would never do for her. She's just she's an amazing, amazing person. For your life now, what kind of what are your hopes and dreams for, for your life? So I've recently told my mom that I wanted to, 
help out help out uh, outside the world like i want to like i'm a person that i've always been helping out i've always been donating to charities i've always been uh going to see what the homeless people and just talk to them talk to them and just be there for them see how they're doing today if i could get them anything to eat you uh, scott you you recently talked to a person who uh who donated his kidney to a, a stranger yeah, it was one of my early episodes, yeah. Yes, that that man said that he that he feels uncomfortable telling people how uh, he has helped people or what he does. I am the same way. Like I, I I would never go out there and say like, Oh, I helped this person, I don't any money to this person, I, I gave them that makes me feel so uncomfortable, like it makes me feel guilty in a way that I'm doing that. And I've seen I've seen people out there, they'll go help out people, homeless people, and they go with the phone with the camera on I'm like, really? You're not really helping. You're not showing people that you're you're doing this, but it's not really for the thing. It's for your viewers or to get thought that you're a good person. That just makes me so uncomfortable. So like, I want to do this thing that anonymously, where I would help people provide homeless shelters, provide people in need, and the women that have been abused, and women that have been went through a lot in life. There's a lot of women out there that just go through a lot, like. People are like that. People, there's people are like that out there. It haunts me. It's very. It's. It really scares me. I want to help those women. I want to show them that not all men are the same. Because I've heard that many times that women, whenever a woman goes through things like that, she hates men, men or disgusting men or this. Which most of the time, she's like, no, that's not true. We're different. There's nice of us out there. There's one, some other that would actually want to help you, be there with you. For some reason, um, in my life, I've been taught many times that people talk to me and they're just they open up to me. Now I've always wondered like, why is that? Why is that? What do you like? And I ask some people like, why do you always tell me secrets and stuff like that? They're like, do you listen? Do you want to talk to you? Like, actually, I feel like I'm a better person. And when you ask me how I'm doing, you actually mean it. How am I doing? And I tell you what I'm doing. When people ask how you're doing, usually they just they want to ask you that because it's a common thing. They be like, hi, hi, how are you? Good, good. But you, you actually ask how are you doing um if i'm not okay you say no you don't seem okay what is it so that's that's a person that you are and people have told me that like i actually listen to people and actually care you know so like i get the view i get a feedback from people people tell me that i actually listen and there's so i think i'm good for that and adoption is something that i want to do in life and i want to have my own kids for sure yeah but adopt is also the one of the things that I actually want to do in my life, I want to keep, I take some kids that just out there because this, the system, the system is pretty, pretty messed up in a way because a lot of kids just end up on the streets also or end up very, uh, not taken care of. So I want to help a lot of kids. And if more people can do it, it would be great. If we could, I know we don't take it the same way, but if we could all adopt kids, if we could all help the kids that they need, then we don't who would have this problem we would have a uh, kids that are just going in the streets and growing up in the streets and have nowhere to go the thing that also haunts me or scares me it's seeing me being in my car or coming from work like uh and I have my heated seats on i have my heater on in a car i'm going home and passing by some homeless people that just it breaks my heart knowing that He's out there in the cold. 
nowhere to go. It's not blank. He has nowhere to go. But I'm going home. I'm going to go in my bed today with my blanket on in the heated home with the heater on. He doesn't, he doesn't have that choice. He can't do that. He's stuck there. It always, like, I, I, I usually avoid roads. So I, I don't pass by them. I don't see them because I know I'm going to start crying. I'm going to stop the car. And I'll just tear up because it's so sad knowing that someone is this cold. And Canada is a very cold place. You know, people they're just they're there. They have nowhere to go. They're stuck in the cold. They're just hopeless. It's it's very hopeless. They're, they're just there. It's as if no one cares about them. But like, or you could be eating and you see them just walking in a, around a restaurant begging for food, and people will like throw things at them or insult them. <sighs> I wish you could all just help out, help out the people that we need. It just feels good. Like, I I have never done any drug in my life. I've never smoked, never done anything like that. But someone telling you thank you, someone telling me thank you for this, it feels so good, like, helping out people. Like, the, the feeling back that you get, like, someone telling you thank you for helping me or thank you for the food. That's for this change I gave it. It's just, it's so empowering. It's so like powerful. You know, something that occurred to me, you said you don't have any pictures of your dad and, and all you know is what people say about him and about what a wonderful and kind person that he was. And I think the fact that you, with you being such a compassionate person and having such a big heart, to help other people, maybe that's probably the way your dad was too. So if you want to know what your dad was like, maybe it's sort of like the way you are today and being compassionate with other people. You know, Scott, my mom has said the same thing that you said. Whenever I talk about things that I want to do in life, she's like, your dad would have loved for you to do that. Your dad did that. Your dad wanted to do that. Because he did everything that, I want, that I'm doing. But, and I, I didn't know most of the things. But things that I did, I just go tell him, like, oh, wow, your dad did that. Your dad wanted to do that one day. She just says, like, yeah, that's something that your dad would, would have done. And the fact that you're saying it just proves that, yes, that you're, you're all right. You're actually all right. And I have that side of him. I have that part of his heart. Because he was just a loving person. I've never heard anything bad about him. I never heard that he did this, he did that. It just I've always heard good things that he helped these people. He helped them. He, he raised kids that weren't his kids. He raised, uh, you know, the fact that you also saying it just proved that, yes, that's probably true, yes. And for you to be that way, that's how you honor his memory. Yes, yeah. And I'm glad that I, I have that part of him. Like, none of us look like him. Like, when my mom, she, she, she was like, oh, you have his futures. You have his uh, fingernails or you have his finger toes. But, like... None of us actually like look look like him, which is uh, yeah. I mean, he has brothers in the states. He has a brother in uh in Kentucky, and he doesn't look like him like uh at all. And in the African culture, we know we like I don't say uncle sometimes. So, like we will say we will call our uncles dads. We will call them dads, dad. You know, we can't we don't call them by names, which is it's rude. We don't call them by names. We just call them dad. We 
Some people will say uncle because it's a new thing about it. We, we always call them. And then recently when I called my uncle in the States and I was like, I said, uh, Tata, Tata, which is a dad in uh, my mother's tongue. I was just like, I felt this shock because I've never, I've said, I haven't said it in so long that I said dad. It's been so long that I've called someone dad and I just I felt this like a shock. I thought, oh my God, I said dad. It's been so long. And everyone's like, yeah, it's been long since you said it. I'm sure people are going to be moved by this story. No, no child, no human should go through what you went through. Thank you for sharing it. And if, if someone wants to contact you, I know you're on Instagram and you've got email and uh, we'll have links to that in the show notes for this episode. If anyone wants to get in touch with you. Perfect. Thanks. That'd be great. Yeah. And I'm here. If, if one needs, anyone needs to have to talk to, to talk to me as a question about me or as a question about you that you don't, I can help. I will provide whatever help that I, you need help with. That's if I could help you, you know, and I'll be here for you if you need help with anything. If you have any questions about your life or my life, I'll be glad to help you. Remember the young lady Dee was talking about, Gloria? He's still hoping to connect with her and tell her his true feelings. So Gloria, if you're listening to this, don't give up on him. Maybe we'll have an update from Dee about that situation at some point in the future. As I got to know Dee prior to recording our conversation, I found out that he's a fan of The Office, like I am. And one of his favorite quotes on that show is from Andy Bernard when he said this, I wish there was a way to know you were in the good old days before you left them. A lot of wisdom in those words. Okay, what happens when you take a bunch of podcast listeners and you put them all online in front of a camera? You get the what was that like Zoom chat. We've done this a few times now and it's a blast. Last time we played podcast trivia and Laura up in Canada won a what was that like coffee mug. This time it's show and tell for the family pets. You like showing off your dog or your cat or your hamster or your snake or your pet skunk? Well, this is your opportunity because we want to see them. And I want to make sure you understand the Zoom chat is open to everyone. All listeners are invited. Doesn't matter if you're a Patreon supporter or not, or if you're brand new and you've only listened to a few episodes so far, or if you've been listening since episode one, you are invited. If you're in the listener community, you'll get the invitation with all the meeting details automatically. It's going to be this coming Sunday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. So if you're not already in the listener community, and it's free of course, you can get in at community.whatwasthatlike.com. Otherwise, to get the Zoom information, just email me or contact me through the website and I'll get you the meeting link and everything. You can get on Zoom with your computer, your tablet, your phone, whatever you want to use. We'll have a great time getting to know each other, maybe talk about the episode you just listened to, and show off our furry friends. So don't forget, it's this Sunday at 4 p.m. Eastern, and I hope to see you there. And a reminder, I'll be at Podcast Movement, a big podcasting conference, in Los Angeles later this month, so if you're going to be there, let's connect. And that brings us to this week's listener story, which needs a content warning because it includes a sexual attack. 
And by the way, if you have a story that's interesting, funny, unusual, or just entertaining in some way, and you can tell it in a few minutes, call it into the podcast voicemail line anytime, day or night, 727-386-9468. Stay safe, and I'll see you in two weeks. This is about a time I felt the most scared I've ever felt in my life. It was 2019 and I had booked a work trip to Istanbul with a director friend. We wanted to film this documentary about the most historic, monumental places related to the Turkish Ottoman Empire. And one of our filming spots, spots in our list, was this historic landmark called the Galata Tower, which was the tallest building around the Ottoman Empire and also showed a bird's eye view of the whole city of Istanbul. So when we arrived at our location to film, we were quite late in the day and the queue of tourists surrounding the tower was insanely long. We decided to call it off. Um, We had supper at this nearby cafe where we came to learn that right next to the Galata Tower is supposed to be this beautiful remote hotel, which was a 400-year-old rickety building and was supposedly the most haunted building in the area. And the tourist guests avoided spending the night at this hotel. So it immediately caught our attention and we went inside this haunted hotel with my director friend and we went to the front desk to inquire further, where we came across this rather beautiful concierge in his early 20s, a very Timothy Chalamet lookalike, if anything. And there is a reason I'm mentioning his appearance. Anyway, so we we told him that we didn't want to stay at this hotel, but if he can tell us more about, if he can confirm us about the hauntings, which he did, that it it indeed was a haunted building, supposedly, especially the third floor of this um, hotel is the one that scares the people away. He kept insisting that we, he will give us a very good discount if we book to stay in his hotel, in his quite charming smile, but obviously um, we were not into this. My director friend wasn't keen to th- about this, but I was very keen to film this third floor because it was, I mean, obviously it caught my attention. So the following day, um, I decided, I went ahead myself, my director called it off, but I mean, I always had a thing for the haunted macabre places. So I went ahead solo and I thought I would film it on my iPhone anyway and edit it in a documentary somehow. It was around sunset when I checked in front desk with our new concierge. Uh, acquaintance and he offered me the high tea menu which came with the booking. So I had that high tea and uh, I mean obviously it was dark outside now when I asked this concierge to guide me to the dreaded third floor suite I was there for. The floor itself looked like an ordinary restored old hotel. I mean the big suite bedroom which was supposedly the most haunted bedroom in this building was already ajar with the very beautiful ambiance, lights on and everything. I mean, I was definitely nervous, uh, but the concierge had this warm, charming smile and I wasn't alone. So I went inside, I immersed myself in filming everything I could about this room, taking selfies, and it took me about 10 minutes to realize that the concierge, Matt, wasn't there. So I had a mini heart attack, obviously. I mean, I didn't know when the hell he took off, so I decided to take my leave as well. I mean, obviously, I didn't want to be alone in this room. Uh, At that point, I realized that the door of the room was locked. I tried to push open the door like with all my force. I mean, I was having a mini heart attack and I naturally started shouting and hammering at this door. At the very far end of this room, the bathroom door opened and out came the concierge. I mean, I started laughing rather relieved because, I mean, obviously I wasn't alone and I had assumed that he had ran off, locked me inside as some joke. When he came out of the bathroom, he wasn't laughing anymore. I mean, 
poker face, rather stern expression. Um, rather, in a way, quite a, a strange expression on his face. He wore in, like, sort of robotic. Um, he came near me and he took my phone from my hand and quickly threw it away. I mean, then he forcibly thrust it towards me, forcibly thrusted me towards the bed. It was this insane blur. I mean, it was this mental lapse of things, as my brain wasn't able to acknowledge what was happening at that moment. So I wasn't even fighting back. I mean, he was on top of me on this bed and was trying to untie both his and my clothes. So I was frozen both mentally and physically. I mean, I didn't think that this sort of fear can be categorized, but I mean, I lost my voice. I mean, obviously, my attempts to trying to push him away wasn't working on his violent physical force on me, his arms, his, and all I could muster was, please, 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 stop, 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 stop. In a passing moment of trying to think my way out, I stopped struggling when he was on top of me, and I, and um, to no avail, I started um, guessing him back, which kind of took him by crazy surprise. I mean, my minor cooperation shocked him, and his um, strong physical force on me relaxed. I mean, he looked in my face with, like, a surprise, like, obviously, okay, so this girl is into this assault. I mean, like, she isn't consenting to it. I mean, obviously, I was, I had already mentally planned this. So I asked him if I can go to the bathroom. So he was fine. He gestured, okay. So it was when I had locked myself in the bathroom and started shouting like a maniac is when he realized my getaway plan. I think it probably took him 10 to 15 seconds to make a run for it himself and out of the room before anyone came to my rescue. And thus, um, I saved myself from this horrible incident, or rather half saved myself. I mean, in hindsight, I kind of realized that the devils who are malevolent are, are mostly in human forms rather than 400-year-old specters of a haunted building. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.